Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're continuing in our study, our walk through the Gospel of John that we've begun several weeks back, and we took a little break over Christmas and the first part of the year, but we are back in continuing where we left off John chapter 5. As a way of reminder, since it's been a while, that to remind of what John at the end of his, the gospel according to John, John tells us why he wrote the gospel of John, or we call it the gospel according to John. And he wrote in John 20, 31, by way of reminder for us this morning, but he tells us the reason. He said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The reason he wrote those previous chapters was in order for you to have faith and confidence and belief, salvation in and through Christ, and by believing wasn't just an intellectual assent, but the believing was transformative, that you would believe, and that by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, you will have life in His name. You know, there's always been historically a lot of pursuit and confusion concerning religions and the pursuit of God. How is a person reconciled to God? How is a person made right to God? And it's interesting whether you study the very early beginnings of, of history, man has always sought to find something to worship. He's always fought, thought to find something, whether it was uh, something he carved, something he made, nature, sun, moon, whatever it is. There was something, again, this, the God-sized hole in us, if you will, that God has made us, as Augustine, uh, St. Augustine said, that our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee, that we are designed to be made for God and to worship God. We are image bearers, but because of the damage of sin, that image has been broken and distorted, but yet there's still something in creation or in mankind, humankind, that desires to worship, if you will, or to acknowledge uh, something beyond just them. Uh, I've mentioned this, I think, one other time in a message, but Back in the 80s or 90s, I don't remember, there was a crazy movie, funny movie, called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Anybody ever heard of that movie? And the whole premise of the movie is this, is that this individual's flying a plane, and he's, you know, a little plane either over in the Amazons or in Africa or somewhere, remote tribe uh, is down underneath, and he's drinking a Coke, a bottle of Coke. And he just tosses it out the window of this little plane, and he's flying over this remote jungle. And so this remote tribe that has no you know, interaction with the outside world sees this Coke bottle fall from the heavens, and they begin to develop an entire religion around this Coke bottle and worship, and it creates strife and conflict with various groups and tribes over who has access to the Coke bottle. Now, again, the whole thing is done kind of like a documentary, but it's funny, but yet it reveals the human heart that wants to seek and find something beyond themselves. Well, I'm thankful that God has not left us in a mystery, but that the Lord has given us a a reliable, consistent witness in Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel of John 
helps us in our understanding of what it means to be right with God, to be reconciled with God, and to have a relationship with Him. One of the things that we find, especially as we come to John chapter 5 and kind of pivot in a transition between the first four chapters, a little uh, review here, but the first four chapters we see generally an acceptance of Jesus and a belief in Jesus for the most part. But when we come to chapter 5, we're going to see a little bit of a turning now towards uh, those uh, against Jesus and some hostility. Much of this was deliberately brought on and provoked by Jesus himself. One of the things that Jesus continually provoked and stirred up intentionally was the phony religion of the Jewish leaders. They had a true structure that God had given to them, the law, uh, the worship of God, but unfortunately they had turned it on its heads and made uh, it a a works-based, performance-based type of thing that was, that was man-made, even though it had a form of godliness. It was a man-made system that instead of helping people find God, it actually kept them away from God, even though they thought they were doing the will of God by obeying all the rules and regulation that these, that these religious leaders had accumulated uh, in their traditions. And Jesus was always pushing back against these, and it caused those religious leaders, sometimes they're referred to as the Jews, certainly not every Jewish person, but uh, John refers to the Jews, and he's mainly referring to the religious uh, uh, groups of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees mainly, the Sanhedrin, which was a composite of both of those groups. And so that when we come to chapter 5, we see that now beginning where Jesus is pushing back because what is he doing? He's confronting phony religion with the true way that God has given to us to have access and have a true relationship. And so in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 9, I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. And I'm using the ESV here to read together, uh, or not together, but I'll read it and you follow along and uh, listen as we look at just the first nine verses. We may touch on some others, but just for clarity to give us a little sense of the context, I want us to look at verses one through nine. And so it begins, after this, meaning after what preceded in chapter four, after this there was a feast of the Jews. Now we're not really sure which feast this was. Some think the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not really sure, but it didn't serve the purpose of John to mention it. And, this, and there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, that, and there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which, had, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who had been there, who had been an invalid, uh, for 38 years. One man that was there, he had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, verse 6, and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another one steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. We thank you for your holy word. Give us open our, uh, ears and, and hearts and be receptive to hear the word of the Holy Spirit speak to us today. We thank you that you speak to us through your word today. Lord, let the clarity of, Lord, your scriptures, God, bring life to us today. Thank you for those who are here and have determined and set themselves under uh, your voice today through the scripture, through the word of God. And Lord, we know there's great blessing in that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so in our text, as I said, we're moving now from a general time where in the first four chapters there was an openness to Jesus, but now things are going to shift a little bit, and there's going to be actually open hostility uh, to the ministry of Jesus. And the story in John chapter 5 that we'll look at this morning uh, is a great contrast. It's a real historical event, but it also in much of Scripture is illustrative or a picture of broader truths that the Holy Spirit uses to teach uh, aspects of, the, of God and Christ and ministry and salvation. And so this story in John 5, in verses 1 through roughly uh, 16, uh, is a contrast that in this miracle we see a, a, an illustration, a contrast rather, of the impotence of self-religion, of man-made religion, versus the power of Jesus Christ. We see the impotence of man's working his way or striving to do something to bring the real healing that he needs in his life instead of the power of God that is the only way and answer to bring the healing and restoration. So the title of today's message is called Paralyzing Religion. Paralyzing Religion to serve as, as an illustration of Christ's power to save. And you know, it's an important reminder uh, today or any day, especially in this church where we have people from a multitude of uh, Christian churches, backgrounds, maybe no tradition, maybe no background, uh, and always there's a, a mindset that, that my activity, that what I do for God, that that is how... I earn or attain a righteousness before Him. And it doesn't matter. You can come out of a sound biblical church background, but that infectious poison always seems to bear root in the human heart of something that I do to earn righteousness or to be made right with God or something I must continue to do. And so there's always confusion sometimes regarding baptism. Uh, that am I saved, whether I was baptized as an infant or as an adult? Does that save me? Taking communion, does that add anything to my salvation? Or, or giving, or whatever it is, that we can fall into the same thing. And we need to be reminded that it's through Christ and Christ alone that is the power to change us, to heal us, if you will. And we see this tremendous uh, illustrated uh, so well in John chapter 5. Notice with me three things in your uh, outline. You have a listener's guide, and I trust that's helpful to you. I appreciate many of you have said that that is helpful, and so you can follow along there. Notice number one, with this as a backdrop, what uh, I call the inability of the human race. The inability 
of the human race. The human race, what the Bible teaches, is fallen in sin and needs God's rescue. It needs God's salvation. The human race has fallen and they can't get up. Familiar commercial. But notice with me in verse, look at verses 1 through 3. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there was in Jerusalem by a sheep gate a pool, verse 3, and in these lay a multitude of sick people. That's really a picture of the human condition uh, left to itself apart from the intervention of Christ. Uh, a multitude of invalids, the ESV says. The New American Standard says sick. The Old King James says impotent. Uh, other translations use the word helpless, infirm, powerless, feeble. You get the idea. And what a scene this was. Now remember, this is not in the temple. This is uh, near the temple, but this is not part of the temple. And for whatever happened in this mythic tradition that it came to uh, be believed, maybe somebody uh, in this uh, type of pool of water where there seemed to be some type of natural spring of water. Is it down in, uh, is it Hot Springs, Georgia? Is it Georgia? Where there's a, huh? Warm Springs. I knew it was warm. Hot Springs is Arkansas. I knew it was hot, warm, lukewarm, Alabama, whatever it is. Um, and uh, so this is a place called the Pool of Bethesda that means Pool of Mercy. And it was a large pool surrounded by these five porches or porticos. And in this water, this myth, this is not biblical what they believed. It was a myth that believed that when the, this spring of water would stir the pool, somehow they had passed down this idea that it was an angel stirring up the water, and if the invalid or sick could just get into the water in enough time while the water or the spring is being sprung, uh, that that angel or that stirring of the water would heal them. Okay, That was not an accurate true belief. It was a picture, as we'll see here in a little bit, of kind of the mythic things that people believe can bring them help. This was not helping. I mean, think about it. The guy's been 38 years there, and he's still in the same condition that when he started. And so it illustrates, again, the, the people that are there, and this is all I want you to notice in this first part, is this inability that grips the entire human race, that just as there is a multitude of sick people that are blind, lamed, and paralyzed, so too we are spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed spiritually. And without God's intervention, we cannot respond to God. We are like that lame man paralyzed by that pool of water. Uh, even though he thought, and like uh, in this case, he thought his physical need would change him, and certainly it, it will change his life, but the real need that we have is not a physical need. It's not a physical restoration. We need a spiritual transformation. We are blind, paralyzed, without help, and we need a miracle of, of uh, God's rescue and reconciliation. It's interesting how John does this in highlighting this paralyzed man in John chapter 5 
If you remember in John chapter 3, you had Nicodemus. You had a, uh, and it's showing how there's always these various individuals, regardless of who they are, he's painting this picture of the desperate need of humanity, of the human race, that there's an inability in and of ourselves to respond to God. In chapter 3, you see uh, the pride of a Pharisee by the man of Nicodemus, that with all his religious credentials and all his uh, wealth, that he needed rescue. In chapter 4, you see a woman uh, picturing going to the well of, of, uh, to get water, picturing the thirstiness of humankind that thirsts for the living water. They need Christ. In chapter 5, we see this man who is broken and weak and paralyzed or whatever the situation, he cannot, he is enabled to do anything on his own. Okay, And that illustrates the what the Bible tells us about sin. Now, there's a couple of aspects about sin that is important to just kind of have a little, little moment here to digress, but not too much as we talk about this man is a picture of the human condition, the inability of the human race. We need to be reminded that the Bible teaches that we are all infected with sin. The Bible talks about original sin, that when Adam in Genesis 3 uh, fell, he didn't literally trip and fall, but the Bible uses the word the fall, but when he rebelled against God, it didn't just affect him, but affected his entire line. Listen, I can say my wife gave me the gift of uh, ancestry and I was able to trace all, you know, who my relatives, uh, what did it say, I'm 50, 60% Scottish, they all came from Scotland and England, whatever, and, uh, but I can save you some money from Ancestry.com. Your entire DNA line has come from Adam and there has been a sinful line from Adam all, all the way forward, all right? You don't need to get a kit and send spit for them to check it, all right? There you go. That's free. But original sin, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, there's certainly a, an abundance of Scripture that supports, but supports that, but this is just representative, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Speaking about the entire human race is enabled, we have all fallen into sin because of our great-grandparents and because of the sin that infected the entire human race. But also, not only does it depict the spiritual condition, but how much has been affected by sin. How much of the human race? Well, as I said, uh, it, all, and that's where we, get, we talk about uh, total depravity or universal or total corruption, meaning that the entire human race from Adam forward has been corrupted and infected with sin. Give you an illustration. If I was going to have you over to my house for breakfast and a few things I can cook and I can cook an omelet, all right? And I was going to make omelets for you and your spouse with Sherry and I and I'm making, you know, I've got six, seven eggs there. I'm cracking and whipping it up and I've got one egg out of those six that's rotten, I think, well, you know what? The other five will cancel the rotten one out, right? You wouldn't want to eat that, would you? But see, that's the thing, is sin cancels everything out, okay? The entire batch is rotten, and we talk about total or 
uh, depravity or total corruption. And the reason this fits in here is because the entire ability of this man that illustrates our spiritual condition shows that he is unable to respond to his true need. He thinks he has a physical need, but the Bible, again, uses a picture of our spiritual need. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice the word can. That speaks of ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father takes the initiative. And so the Bible gives us the hope that in Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength, when we were helpless, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. It's a tragic picture, the inability of the human race, a tragic picture of the helplessness, the sin-wounded people of the human race that have put their faith and their confidence in a salvation that is nothing more than an empty religious superstition that cannot save them rather than trusting in Jesus Christ who is the only one that can bring transformation. And maybe you're here this morning and you're leaning into a lot of tradition and maybe superstition or whatever it is, but you have to evaluate, is there hope in that structure? Is there hope in that? Am I leaning into something that can offer no hope instead of relying solely on the person and power of Jesus Christ? So that's the inability of the human race. Notice, secondly, what I call the impotency of human religion, the impotency of human Religion, religion, and the way I'm using religion here is I have it in your uh, outline there. It'll be on the screen, kind of defining religion this way. I mean uh, by the use of religion is, is the use this way, is any humanly devised system of belief, any humanly devised system of belief that teaches that by keeping, uh, that's how I'm using rituals and requirements, a person can gain eternal life. That's how I'm using the word religion here in this context. Verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. Whatever he had been doing isn't working. It's condemning true heartfelt worship of the Old Testament. What he's, what he's condemning, if you will, through the account of Jesus throughout what John writes is he's condemning the perversion of what God intended for good in his law and truth and how that was turned on its heads to be a mechanism by, that would uh, trap people into a performance-based ritualistic type religion. Notice several characteristics of religion. Man-made religion is focused on the external, outward. You see this in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites when they fast, when they pray, when they give. Don't be like, and he speaks about how, like the religious folks of the day, when they fast, they want everybody to know that they're fasting. And they would maybe put something in their face where they look a little pale, or if they prayed, they would make sure they prayed out loud where everybody could hear and be in awe of their religiosity and think, oh, they're so holy and righteous, and they have a performance. They're focused on externals. But unfortunately, the heart is corrupt. 
And that's what religion traps us into. I've said this many times because it just kind of fits. Religion, if you will, is like changing clothes but never taking a bath. How long will that work? Well, my kids had that philosophy growing up. My one son, Jonathan, when he was sent in to take a bath, his mother and I always had to make sure when we said, did you take a bath with soap? And if he rolled his hand like, ah, that soap thing, forgot about that soap. Try it again. Go back in there and do it again. Religion is an external pride-filled focus. And that's what man-made religion will do. Man-made religion also is enslaving. In fact, these religious folks, these Jewish leaders themselves were trapped in this, verse 16, because later on, once when the man was healed, the Bible says it was for this reason that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Jesus. What is the basis and root of their persecution? Is they are, they are enslaved into this system, and here is a man who was healed, paralyzed. Man was healed, and what are they focused on? He did it on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? I mean, isn't that crazy? But that's what religion will do. I mean, historically, there are, uh, we know that the Reformation was the fruit in 1517, that the Reformation movement was birthed out of a Roman Catholic system that had enslaved people in a works-based type of power that even threatened people with uh, uh, imprisonment, death, eternal hell, hell, if they dared to go against the church or the pope. It was an enslaving system. And God sent his servants to rediscover and open the word of God to set people free. Islam is an enslaving system. Imagine a system that convinces or leads people to believe that if they crash a jet airplane into a building and kill thousands of people as well as themselves, that that will exalt them into a higher place in paradise. It's an enslaving system. And so human religion is outward focus, external, image-bearing or image-focused, <coughs> and it's enslaving, but it's also exasperating. You know what I mean by exasperating? Because you never can do enough. Some of you may have grew up, grew up in that kind of church. And again, they may have had a statement of faith that was sound and reliable, but unfortunately the practice and how they implemented the Christian life unfortunately was not grace-oriented or grace-based, but it was very performance-oriented. It was not what he did, but it's what you do and what you better keep doing. And you better not mess up because you're going to have to repeat I mean, it was just an enslaving, exasperating cycle. The Pharisees had developed a system of about 613 different laws. Three, now, do you remember when Jesus said, when he talked about your traditions, that you, 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 you admire your traditions more 
than the Word of God. What he's talking about, he's never going against the, the Word of God of Moses, but he's always pushing back and how they took the Word of God and created a system of misapplication. For example, the thing that brought this controversy, as we'll maybe look at just a little bit, maybe more next week, was that Jesus did this on what day? We just read it. The Sabbath. That's, and again, the Sabbath means seventh. The Sabbath is not Sunday. There's no Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath is seven. That's Saturday. The Jews had to and required to keep the Sabbath day. Under the new covenant, we as Christians do not keep the Sabbath. In fact, we don't even literally have to keep a day in regards to the law. We are free because the Bible says every day is holy unto the Lord. But traditionally, Christians have gathered on the first day of the week. That was never called a Sabbath. That was called the Lord's Day. Why? What dramatically happened on the first day of the week 2,000 years ago? A dead man walked out alive from a grave. Something must have happened for calendars and days to get all shifted around so radically. And so they saw the fourth commandment where it said, you shall keep the Sabbath holy. And so through time, you know what they did? They just started helping you in how to do that. And they started adding a few things here and a few things there. And over time, they developed an entire list of things that you could or couldn't do, even to the point of how you might, that if you, had a, 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 if you bought a little bag of herbs or seeds at the store before it closed on the Sabbath uh, sundown on Friday, and you had those bag of seeds, you couldn't even separate them because that would be considered working on the Sabbath. Now remember, and we'll re I'm kind of getting ahead here, but what did they rebuke this man for? And what, what did they go nuts over what happened? You would think that a man had been there 38 years. Some of those guys grew up going and seeing this man and hearing about him. They would have thought it was an undisputable miracle. But they weren't focused on that. They were mad. Why? Because he broke the Sabbath. What did he do? He picked up his little mat and walked. And he wasn't supposed to do that. That was... That was labor. That was work to pick up his mat. That was work. You see, again, they didn't leave it to the Holy Spirit to help guide you. They just said, we're going to help the Holy Spirit, and we're going to give you 18 chapters of how to keep the Sabbath. And I'll be honest with you, as a pastor and growing up in churches, we have a tendency to want to help you keep the Sunday, the Lord's Day, but unfortunately, the Bible just doesn't give you all that information. I've looked back in the maps, and it doesn't have anything back there. But see, again, we want to start adding all this stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. There's not practical things that we should, we should all be doing, right? There's not, it's not practical instruction. It's not just saying that there's you know, just a free-for-all. But we have to be careful that we don't start putting things upon people that are not specifically spoken of in Scripture because we're, 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 we can easily fall into that trap of the Pharisees, all right? I'll give you a, something I found interesting. I won't read the whole thing, but in Acts chapter 15 is a very pivotal event in the history of the church. Uh, don't turn to it, I'm, I'm going to show you one, but make a note of it. Acts chapter 15, that is the, uh, what is oftentimes referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Here's what's going on. You had primarily the church from Acts 
uh, one all the way through primarily is Jewish. It's a Jewish church in Jerusalem, and persecution, they were starting to have to spread out. But as many of these Christian Jews were spreading out, they were evangelizing and they were moving into non-Jewish areas, and those are called Gentile areas. And so you had Jewish believers that were going into Greek areas, Antioch and Ephesus and some of these other places, and guess what? Non-Jews, Gentiles, were coming to faith in Christ. And it happened to be so much that later they had to send, that's what got Paul, uh, you know, he, he They sent Paul there, and they had to send a crew to help teach these Gentiles, these pagans that had no background of Jewish law. But here's the problem of crisis that occurred. In Acts chapter 15, they said, what are we going to do with these non-Jews who are coming to faith in Christ? Do we make them become Jews first and then Christians or accept them in Christ? That means they need to, again, we're talking about Pagan Gentiles, they have no frame of reference. They're worshiping idols, and they have no concept of marriage and monogamy or nothing. They say they've come to, we recognize that they've genuinely come to faith in Christ. So therefore, do they have to be under the law now to become Jews first and then Christian? And that was what's going on there in Acts 15. Now think about how that thing could have turned on its head. The gospel of grace could have been sunk right there. And Christianity would have just been another cultic sect within Judaism of a works-based type of religion. So it's a big deal in Acts chapter 15. As a person, in fact, I think Acts 15 verse 1, the issue is these, these teachers were saying that a person is not justified, that just means made right before God, unless they are circumcised and come under the law of Moses. It's not through Christ alone, it's, that it's through Moses plus Jesus. And if you always want to spot a cult or a false religion, it's always Jesus plus fill in the blank. It might be Jesus plus the watchtower. It might be Jesus plus Joseph Smith's revelation. Whatever it is, anytime they say, and even if it looks good on the outside, well, and there's some groups that say, well, you can't become a Christian unless you're water baptized. Now, I'm saying become a Christian. Not saying that is a part of following and being, walking in obedience. It's saying you can't be saved unless you go through this work, this act. That's always false. And so in Acts 15, they're debating this. And finally, the Holy Spirit uh, breathes some sense into Peter and some of these others. And where they basically come to the the, thankfully, the conclusion is, look, we need to accept these new brothers and sisters solely based on Christ and Christ alone. We do not need to put them in a box to become Jews. They are in Christ, and therefore they are brothers and sisters. And that becomes the criterion. This is something very important that Peter says in verse 10 with all this background. He says, now look at what he says, and we're talking about how the law or legalism is exasperating. Human religion is exasperating. Look what he says, verse 10. Now therefore, Peter says, why do you test God, and he's talking to those legalists 
that, that wanted to put them under the law. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on their necks? You know what the yoke, uh, that was uh, the harness that was put up on horses to guide them. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? Look at this. Which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why do we want to make them come under all that, that, that enslaving stuff when, guys, let's be honest, our forefathers couldn't keep it, and you know and I know we don't do it. That's what the hypocrisy. Jesus said, come unto me, Matthew 11. Come unto me, and in, in, in the context, if you read on, he confronts the Sabbath-keeping again. But right before that, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke, my brace, my harness. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Titus 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy. This is past tense. Hateful and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by what? Works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit. So the Bible says there is a Spiritual inability in the human race, no matter how original or sophisticated our religious efforts are, they are all impotent to bring the real healing into our lives. And this brings us to the last and the third point, is the immediacy of Jesus' restoration. We'll get a little bit more now in the particulars concerning this man's healing. The immediacy of Jesus' restoration. Now, all of Jesus' miracles are illustrative of of spiritual salvation, of spiritual deliverance. They display the power of God, the, the power of Christ. And our bodies need spiritual healing. We will die. We're all going to die. Unless the rapture occurs before, we, were all, we will all eventually die. But to heal, so even Lazarus, do you realize Lazarus raised from the dead on the fourth day? Walking around? You realize that eventually they had a funeral for Lazarus and he didn't come out? He died. Death is inevitable. But, and so regardless of the healing, whether it's whatever the healing physically, eventually something is going to happen. Something's going to catch us. Something's going to happen. And that's why, again, physical healing is temporary. But what kind of healing do we need we need the Spirit. We need to be healed spiritually. And so you see again, don't miss that picture here. Notice five observations in this account. And we're just going to walk through verse 6 through 9 real quick here. Notice first of all is the compassion. The compassion. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. Real simple, aren't you glad Jesus... Sees where we're at. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows everything about us? Even the secrets we think we hide to everybody else. Not only does that speak of Jesus' 
supernatural divinity and power. But Jesus knew 38 years of this man's frustration and discouragement. And Jesus knows everything about you and me. He knows all the disappointments. We talked about that last week. He knows the setbacks. He knows where people have hurt you and did you wrong. He knows the deepest disappointments that you can't even really, you can't even really articulate yourself to somebody. He just knows us. And don't miss that Jesus knew and saw and had compassion. He knows all our thoughts and secret sins. He knows all of the discouragements. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4.13. He not only knows, but he also has compassion. Isn't that amazing? He not only knows everything about us. I mean, if we were real honest with some of us here, you'd be like, whoa, I, I didn't know that about Pastor Tim. I don't think I want to hang out with, you know. There's some things you're just honest. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't tell people, right? Oh, don't look so holy out there. My goodness. Here we're talking about Pharisees and grace and got a bunch of Pharisees here. Right? But he knows everything. I mean, everything about you. David prayed, search my heart, O God. David is confessing, Lord, I can't even accurately diagnose my own life. I need you. And so he had compassion. Notice also the challenge. Verse 6. Again, verse 6, the first part, but the latter part. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, and here's the challenge, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And you're kind of like, duh. But hold on. Yesterday, um, Saturday morning, got up early and uh, made coffee and was going to turn on about 5.36. And uh, I don't always turn on the news right away, but just turned on the TV. And I was watching the Orlando station and, of course, everybody's under winter alert, right? And <laughs> storm, you know, whatever, 2023, you know how they do. And they, uh, the night before, when I was watching the newscast, they were showing all the shelters. For some reason, I had it on the Orlando station, but they were showing all the Salvation Army and all the shelters that were open to bring in homeless folks because of the weather, because of the cold. And they were saying, look... We're, we're open to anybody. Even if, and one guy said, even if we kicked you out in the past, we'll let you in. Because they didn't want anybody on the street. So the next morning, I guess because the station was just on the TV when I turned it on, they, were, they had a live news broadcast and they had live coverage of had, had somebody down at, in that same part of downtown Orlando near the Salvation Army or one of the sheltering facilities and this is what I found interesting. And I thought, wow, that really fits with what we're going to look at this morning. Is they showed live at 6 a.m. there in Orlando, they showed a lot of the, the homeless shelters that were fairly nice, large gym-like things with beds and blankets. And how many of the beds and blankets, nobody was there. And in that, this was live. And within a block or so, it showed all these people outside under an overpass with blankets and cardboard and whatever in the, in the, whatever the temperature was that chose to
to be out there instead of in a nice, warm place. Do you want to be well? And the answer is, I'm not sure. Because in order to be healed and whole, guess what? I might have to give up this begging bit. I might have to get a job. I might have to, here you go, I might have to take some responsibility for my life. And what happens is people become so entwined in their victimhood that guess what happens over time? They can't remember what they looked like without that identity. Do you think Jesus was asking him that question because he needed information? No, Jesus doesn't ask questions to learn anything. He's asking questions to you and me for us to probe and decide, do I want to be well? Do I want to be well? Of course Jesus knew the answer to that. Some people love their sin so much that they're willing to risk. I mean, think about it. You think, boy, with... With all we know and what you had to, to, I mean, the thread of this, that, and the other, or the consequences, why? Because they love their sin so much, they'll risk, they'll risk health, family, job, reputation, disease in some cases, because they don't want to really be well. You know, when the Bible says in, uh, is it Romans 3, where it says, and none seek after God? And again, that's a little bit of a paradox because in one sense we're image bearers and even in sin we are, we're, we're made that only God can, can fill our life. But, but the Bible says there in Romans 3 that none seek after God, that they're not seeking after the God. They're seeking after a God made in their own image. Everybody, as we learned uh, a couple weeks back or whenever, we all want to accommodate and form a God that fits my life. Well, I think God is like this, or I think God is like that. And everybody's just kind of got their own pool of ignorance. So they don't really want God, but you know what people really want? They want relief of shame, guilt, suffering, pain. They want all that. Can we just get it from somebody else? Because God who's holy and righteous? Well, as long as I can pay my own way, I'm in. No. That isn't the way it works. That isn't what Christ has done. And so it brings us to the complaint. Verse 7. Jesus said, do you want to be well? What does the man say? He doesn't answer the question. What does he do? He blames other people. What does he say? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now your passage or translation might have some of those latter part of verse 3 and 4 in italics. It might be a little note because there's some egghead debate with translators and manuscripts and things about whether that was added in later. or whatever. It doesn't do anything to the authenticity or truth of scripture, uh, some people think it might have been because uh, Jesus, or it's acknowledged that that pool of water and the mindset 
Some think that maybe uh, through the various handwritten trans, uh, trans uh, not translations, but transcriptions of the text, that somebody may have made a little marginal note to explain what was being going on there, and then you know somebody else copied it, and they copied it, and eventually it went from the margin, and then they put it in print. You know, so so that's why in very, if you have a King James, New King James, or whatever, you don't see that. But if you have a New American Standard, NIV, ESV, it may you may see a little differentiation there. The point is is it doesn't do anything to the passage, so don't, get, don't, don't lose your faith over that, okay? Um, so what is he doing? He's complaining and saying, you know, I, I, it's like, the problem is, if I could just get in that pool of water, but everybody is robbing me of my healing. And there's folks, and maybe you're like this, that you're just... You're like, of course I want to change. Of course I want to be let Jesus change my life. But you don't know what this person... You don't know what my parents are like. You don't know what... Jesus knows everything. That when he asked him, do you want to be well? Again, blame. You see, it's everybody... The reason my glass is half empty... Because that guy over there stole the other half. And some folks live their life with that type of mindset. And you never, I'm talking about Christians now. I'm I'm talking about people we'll see in heaven. And they they just trod through that. That's not what Jesus asked him. Jesus gave, fourthly, the command, verse 8. Jesus said to him, he didn't throw a white jacket at him. He didn't do any crazy stuff, did he? He just spoke the word. You see that? He just said, rise up. Why? Because there was power. When Jesus commands life, guess what? There's life. When Jesus says, rise up, his word injects the power. Jesus said to him, rise, get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus didn't even acknowledge his griping and complaining that nobody cared for him. That's why he's been stuck there for 38 years. Jesus says, get up, take responsibility and get up. I've given you the power and the truth to change and get up and walk. He imparted power, and immediately those atrophied legs were instantly strengthened. According to verse 9, verse 9 says, And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. Later on, we'll remember the story about Lazarus. Jesus just had to say, Lazarus, come out. That's all he had to do. There's power. And as I said, this isn't just a story of a physical miracle but it's a picture of what Jesus can do for you and me in transforming our lives. The gift that Jesus brings is no different than the gift that he brings us. Do you want to be well? Rise up and walk. Say yes to Jesus. And I believe, even though the man didn't verbalize, I think the fact that he obeyed and did what Jesus said for him to do demonstrates in that very mustard seed-like way, faith in Jesus. 
That's all it's required. Just mustard seed faith. The tiniest little seed there is. And don't miss this little side truth. Not really a side truth, but don't miss this either. Is that the Lord did not choose him because he foresaw that he had faith to believe for a healing. The guy, as you read the story, didn't even know who he was. Even after the healing took place. Read on. The Pharisees say, what do you I, who do you think you are? You're walking on the, you're doing work on the Sabbath. How are you doing this? And it says, well, a man, and he talks about this man that brought healing in his life. And he's like, well, who is he? They get the little pads out. They're going to write his name on. Where he's like, I, I don't know. He didn't say his name. So obviously, the man didn't have faith in him himself that responded. And then Jesus said, oh, I see what you did. Now I'm going to respond. No, 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 no. Don't miss this. There's nothing there except the sovereign, divine prerogative of Jesus to say, why didn't he heal everybody? Why did he pick this guy? You ever think about that? Why did God save? Why doesn't God save everybody? The real question, when you understand the nature and character of a holy God, is why did God save any of us? As if there's anything resident good in us to be saved. Spurgeon said, the only thing I brought to my salvation was my sin. I love the, the quote. I'll skip a couple of scriptures there, but put the quote up. James uh, Montgomery Boyce in heaven now, prominent pastor in Philadelphia. Some of these people I intentionally use quotes and names so that when you're looking for things to read or people, you'll like write that name down. That's what I always do. I hear somebody mention a name or somebody I write down and uh, look up and want to read other stuff that they have. But in his commentary on John, James Montgomery Boyce says, that is how God saves sinners today. If our salvation depended upon our, our recognizing him or reaching out a hand toward him, who could be saved? The answer is no one. Yet instead of waiting for us to come, instead of waiting to help those who help themselves, Christ comes to us and speaks the words that give life. That's biblical truth and salvation. And you see where again, and it's fun to do this and theologies and all that, and, you know, the mechanics. But here, here's the thing I've, I've learned. And some of you won't know these terms, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. You're probably better off if you don't. But whether you're a Calvinist or a Wesleyan Arminian, the point is there's always been historically debate on the mechanics of when all these things take place. That's where the theology, the theological debates occur. But one thing, whether you're a Calvinist or you're a Wesleyan Arminian, one thing there is universal agreement is, is that if that God did not first act in grace, nobody could or would be saved. And I think that's, just be satisfied with that. It's okay to talk about other things and, and wrestle with some of the complaints. That's okay, I like that. But don't miss the fact that if God, what does the scripture say? Go back, if you could, to 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And last is the consequence. Verse 9, what did He do? He took His mat, 
took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. We'll probably talk more about that next week. His life was dramatically changed. And let me give you the assurance of this. The Jesus who asked this man by the pool, do you want to be healed, will not turn away from you If you say, yes, I want to be healed. I want to be changed. That same Jesus never refuses the cry of the sinner. This is Jesus, you see my condition. I've gotten so used to it. I don't even, know, I don't even remember life before. And Jesus said, oh, I remember. Because I created you and knew you before the foundations of the world. I knew you when I had David write Psalm 139 and said, All your days are numbered and put in my book. You may not remember what you were designed to be, but Jesus says, I see. Just like he looked at Peter. Peter changed his name to Rock. Really? Peter the Rock? Denied Jesus? Told Jesus, I'm not going to allow you to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How would you like to have it recorded in Scripture for generations that Jesus called you the devil? You know, I'd be up there in heaven and say, come on, Jesus. Can you, like, can you blot that out? Do, do one of those miracle things and edit that, you know. Come on, you know. I lived with this reputation. Come on, no. But he called him a rock, not based on what he was then, but based on what Jesus was making him and transforming him to be. Tony Evans gives this quote in his study Bible I thought was worth noting. Tony Evans says, wherever your bed is, that's where your home is. Thanks to Jesus, this man would no longer be sleeping in a place of despair. It was time to roll up his mat and find a new home. Some of you need to roll up your mat. And find a new home. So the question is. Do you want to be well? You remember Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty. Sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses. And all the king's men. Couldn't put Humpty back together again. And that may be your theology. You got Humpty Dumpty theology. But let me give you a little spin on the Humpty Dumpty theology that's gospel oriented. Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. So that regardless of death and in spite of sin... Through grace, he might put us together again.